you would please turn in your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Our systematic exposition has brought us this morning to verses 8 through 20 of this text. And today we consider these verses under the title, The Futility of Society and Wealth and the Enjoyment of God's Gifts. Someone said that's a long title. Not quite Puritan, but um, the futility of society and wealth and the enjoyment of God's gifts. So if you've made your way to Ecclesiastes 5, please follow along in your Bible as I read the text aloud. Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 8. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent, perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Verse 10. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eateth little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. As he came forth from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away with his hand. And this also is a sore evil that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. Verse 18, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good, good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth he hath given him the power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. Heavenly Father, we call upon you to bless the reading and now the preaching of your word. We pray that you open our hearts. We pray, Lord, where we harbor error where we harbor love for the wrong things Lord that you would remove that and you would build in us truth that you would build in us love 
for the things that you love. God, hide this preacher behind the cross. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the rather long title that I gave this section of scripture this morning will serve for us as an outline the futility of society and wealth and the enjoyment of the good gifts of God. We find in verses 8 and 9 the decry, the, the, the futility of society. Verses 10 through 17 highlight the futility of wealth. And then verses 18 through 20 speak to the enjoyment of the good gifts of God. So that is our outline. That's the trajectory that we have this morning. We have in our study heard from the preacher, the, the preacher being the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon. Uh, we have heard in the first verses of this chapter, some wise words of warning, cautioning us as we go into the house of God, as we speak before God, as we make vows and oaths. <clears throat> Solomon, who has been so vanity and vapor focused, uh, has in, in the verses that we've just studied most recently extolled the virtue and the lasting value of the worship of God. The guy that says all is vanity finally has told us one thing that is of value, one thing that has meaning and purpose, and it is the worship of God. But as we move then to verses eight and following, we return to this vapor and vanity chorus that we are familiar with. But as we return to it, we don't just come this morning uh, saying, well, it's the same old thing again. We wanna, we wanna come and pay attention. We would do well to pay attention. And I think it will be easy for us this morning to pay attention, to sort of come to the edge of our seats and lean in as the preacher speaks because we'll see that he is addressing for us things which are common to all, things which we have seen and we have struggled with in our lives. He speaks of frustrations and disappointments we have as we contemplate society. Now, society, I've titled the sermon, The Futility of Society, and we speak of society. I want us to define that term. We, we don't see it in the text. We don't see the word society, so why are we using that term? Society, as we understand it, is the, the way that people live together in, in their particular context, in their particular way of organizing uh, in the particular order that they come to, and we might say in some cases the lack of order, uh, such as with anarchy uh, or disorganization. But the text speaks to a society, and it speaks specifically to uh, a monarch-type society with a king and with subjects. But we will see that there's application to us as we think of this text and, and its application to other societies. As, as we see this text speak of corruption, corruption is common to mankind. So we can say that these verses and what we have here in Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20 has application to all societies and to the society in which we live. Now, as we grow up, as we go from children into adulthood and we begin to take note of how things are in the world, 
we realize something, we learn some stuff, and there are profound truths that we come to. Maybe you've come to this one. Everybody has a boss. Everybody has a boss. I, I have a boss. My boss has a boss. My boss's boss has a boss. And so on it goes. Everybody has a boss. And somebody may be thinking, well, what about the self-employed? They don't have a what, a, what a way to be your own boss. Well, those who are self-employed, they're their own boss, but they still have those to whom they answer. They have customers. They have the tax man. They have governmental regulators. Everybody has somebody to answer to. Everybody has a boss. And we see that in the text uh, mentioned for us. In the middle of verse 18, we see this high official is watched over by a higher official and there are yet higher ones watching over them. So everybody has a boss. So this is the type of society that we see. He's giving us the structure of this society. And we can relate in our day. I mean, we know everybody has a boss. Every watcher is watched. Police are policed. Governors are governed. There is seemingly an endless hierarchy in the way things are set up in the world. And it's not unique to the republic in which we live. It holds true to parliamentary societies. It holds true even in absolute monarchies as well. Everybody has a boss. There's somebody watching everyone. And we see that in the text for us and it rings true. So as we members and observers of society read verse 8 we are instantly engaged from the very beginning if you see the oppression of the poor and the denial of justice and the violation of righteousness you see right there you got me you drew me into the conversation because i do see oppression you see oppression. We see the weak and the poor being used and abused. We see those feeble people that are trod upon by those who are over them. We do see travesty of justice. We see things that are wrong called right and things that are right called wrong. And this is what I think is common to man, no matter what our political bent, no matter what our political tendencies are, we recognize that there are areas of perversion, areas of corruption. Now there may, there may seem to be a charade of good and right, but often it's only a pretense. It's, it's rarely uh, backed with any real effort and it almost never has right outcome. It's frustrating. And I think this is, this is what the preacher speaks. And I think this is, this is what uh, brings us to open our ears to this text. So we all come to hear what the preacher has to say regarding the sad state of affairs in society. And maybe we hope as, as we come, we say, yes, we see these corruptions. We see oppression. We see travesties of, travesties of justice. Wouldn't it be great to hear Solomon give us a grand plan for restructuring, which will right the ship, which will straighten the crooked, which will right the wrong. Boy, that's a political speech, right? That's, that's what we like to hear, but that's not what we find here. 
The preacher says, well, you, when you see the oppression, when you see the travesties of justice, he says, don't be shocked. You should not look at this with amazement. Marvel not at this matter. And here we get this perspective. We get, we get that this is the way society is. Whatever society we live in, this is the way it is. There is corruption. There is injustice. That's the way it was in Solomon's day. And I would remind you that Solomon was the king. Solomon was the king, but corruption and abuse were even in his kingdom. Corruption and abuse are inevitable in any society where men participate. <laughs> that's the way it has been from Solomon's day. That's the way it has been all the way down to today. And that's the way it will be until Christ returns. As Lord Acton observed, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely so Christians don't be surprised do not marvel at this now now as we think about this we think about our response we we observe this injustice we observe this corruption but what is our response to the injustice to the oppression to the corruption as I look out at UIC, we have in our congregation some aspiring lawyers, at least one who has hopes for a judicial bench. We have law enforcement. We have soldiers, both former and current. We have young people who, who have dreams to change the world. And we have others among us who wonder if change is even possible. I have spoken with some of you and, and I have heard the passion that you have for truth and justice, for good and right. And I, I love to hear that. So as we come to scripture and we find Solomon saying, don't be amazed, don't be shocked. This is the way society is Maybe there's a tendency for us to be discouraged by this. Maybe there's a tendency for, oh, well, then there's no use. There's no sense. But I think it's important for us. I think it's important for us as Christians. And I think it's important for you as your development as a lawyer, as a judge, as a police officer, or just as a concerned citizen, as you develop into what you will be. That you have this dose of reality which the preacher provides. Remember that he is brutally honest with us. He is brutally honest and I think that's what we have here. And I think we need this dose of reality. The preacher is not telling us to quit. He, he's not advising that we surrender to corruption. I think here and in other places in Scripture, we are encouraged to fight, to fight the good fight, to oppose injustice, to, to champion right. And, and we want to do that, and, and I want you to do that, to do that with passion, to do it with skill, to do it with tenacity, but to do it with realism and to do it with that 
all too uncommon common sense. You, you can fight the fight. You, you can, you should, you, you must, you will make a difference. You will make a difference to a few poor, oppressed people. And for some of you, it may even seem like you make a difference to many people. But here's the reality that we have. Don't expect that the corruption and oppression that we oppose, that we fight against, will weaken and die. What you do is important. What you do, you should do. But the work will never be finished this side of heaven. The work will never end. The police officer, when you clock out, there's as much need for policing as there was at the beginning of your shift. Lawyer, when you put away an evil oppressor, there are just as many evil oppressors out there. Judge, when you retire, the work must continue. Someone else will have to pick up the robes that you lay down and continue the fight. This is the way society is. And this, this should not be discouraging or depressing to us, but it should give us perspective. And it highlights for us the need to do the work. And it highlights for us that our hope is not found under the sun. There is a great need to do this work of opposing evil and to inspire a future generation to continue that work. So we are, as the preacher commands, not surprised. But the hope and the longing for the world to come wells up within us as we look to the day when all things will be put right, when all things will be perfect. And we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Yeah. Verse 9 presents a bit of a challenge for us in translation and interpretation. Different versions of the Bible read differently as we come to verse 9. So I've just taken a few notes here, just a, a smattering of examples here. The King James, verse 9, Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The benefit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Now in this, I want us to see the king. The king in the King James, it sounds like the king is served by the field or the workers in the field. They serve the king, so the king is served. The New American Standard says, after all, the king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. So there it sounds like the king serves the land, serves the worker, serves the field. King James makes it sound like the king is served. The New American Standard makes it sound like the king serves. Another translation says, but the greatest advantage to the country is when the king makes himself a servant to the land. Here the king potentially serves the worker in the land and we see that that is good, that is a good thing. Another translation says, and even the king is under overseers, his country owns him. Now, now this, 
This echoes back to the everybody's got a boss. There's there's people higher than, you know, it echoes back to that. But is that what's being said here? The English standard, which many of you are reading this morning, says, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So here we have not necessarily that the king is served and not necessarily that the king serves in a, in a volitional kind of way, but but what we find is that even if the king is corrupt here in this monarchy, even, even under this monarchy or in some society, there is enough organization that crops get planted and that benefits everyone. This is very difficult for us. And, and I don't think if the scholars who are so much smarter than me can work this out, I don't think I'm going to sort out all the nuance of this verse. But we can look at these different translations and interpretations and we can profit from this. It at least gives us the idea that that anarchy, disorder is not good for society. And these verses dispel the idea that that, well, if we get a new king, everything's going to be fixed. If we elect a new president, then the country will be on the right track. If we clean out Congress, if we drain the swamp, then there'll be no more corruption. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to be responsible citizens. We, we need to be responsible citizens or subjects in whatever context, in whatever society God's providence places us. So for us Americans in 2024, Vote. Vote for the person that you think is best for the country. But but Christians, don't wrap your hope up in that candidate. Vote your conscience and then hang your hope on Jesus Christ and on his soon return. In society, under the sun, we find futility. All is vanity. All is vapor. All is striving after the wind. And even when there is value in society, it is just a brief puff of smoke. So there is, there is advantage. And, and Koheleth, the, the prophet, uh, the preacher has told us there's advantage, but it's a vapor. There's futility in society. Verse 10, we turn our attention to the futility of wealth. These are pretty straightforward verses. A quick read yields for us most of the truth that we find here. Verse 10, he that loves money will not be satisfied, nor he that loves abundance or wealth be satisfied with its increase. You love money, you will not be satisfied with money. The first thing we need to note here, the first thing we need to pay attention to is that the love of money is not the same as money. It says here, he that loves money will not be satisfied with money. As we speak of the love of money, that's not the same as money. One of the most often misquoted scriptures is money is the root of all evil. How many people have heard money is the root of all evil? That's not what the Bible says. The love of money is the root of all evil. And it's possible to love money and not have any of it. And it's possible to have money and not be a lover of money. Money and the love of money are not the same. 
So some of you, when we read the verse, he that loves money will not be satisfied with it. Some of you said, well, that verse doesn't apply to me because I'm broke, so I can't love money. <laughs> but that's false logic. That's false reasoning. I personally believe that the love of money is more often found in people who have less than in people who have more. Those, those who have more, those who have vast wealth, they quickly discover the emptiness of it. They quickly discover that wealth does not satisfy. They quickly discover that there's nothing in money to love. But those who see themselves in need, often we think that money may be the answer to all the things. We think that money will rescue us out of and solve our problems. So they, having no money, love money. So money and the love of money is not the same. And secondly, we need to note as we consider this text, for all of us here today, now this is not something I can say everywhere in the world, but for all of us here today, by any global measure, in any historical context, every one of you listening are wealthy. I did some research. It's, you know, numbers confuse me sometimes. So you can, you can look this stuff up, but the median American net worth value, uh, net worth per person is something like $100,000 per person more than the worldwide average. We are wealthy. Friends, on our brokest day, we are rich. We are wealthy. So the last thing we do when we come to this text that speaks about money and the love of money is to dismiss it and say, well, this has no application to us. These things do have application to us. They are completely relevant. So verse 10 teaches us that loving money, striving after wealth just to have wealth, chasing the dollar will never satisfy. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied with money. My pastor growing up, I, I don't know if you like to hear things that my pastor growing up used to say, but I like to say, so I'm going to tell you. Uh, Brother Jordan growing up used to say, the American philosophy is get all you can and can all you get. <laughs> Think about it. I don't know if today we are canning much. We seem to be spending it as quickly as we get it. But it is get all you can, certainly. I believe it was Rockefeller who was asked, how much is enough? Now, just so we know, Rockefeller was worth over $4 billion in today's money. Did I say $4 billion? That's wrong. $400 billion. $400 billion. Over $400 billion in today's money. And that ranks him then in wealth higher than Mr. Musk, higher than Jeff Bezos, combined the wealthiest man that we have known in recent history if anyone has ever had enough John D. Rockefeller had enough and he was asked 
How much is enough? And do you know his reply? Just a little more. Just a little more. That's the answer. No one who loves money will ever be satisfied with money. Enough is never enough. How much is enough? A little too much. A little too much. The more you have, the verse 11 brings us to this, to this conclusion. Money never satisfies because the more you have, the more fast friends you have. The more you have, the more people who are there to eat it. The better you're doing, the more distant relatives want to reconnect with you. They're just catching up. To put it so that we Texans can really understand it, the more ground beef you have in your freezer, the more people want to come over with a package of buns. This is why enough is never enough. And, and money does not bring peace and security and rest. Look at verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. The laboring man, the working man, sleeps well even when his belly is not full. But the full-bellied rich man finds no rest. Verse 13. There is a sore evil. Now, now we've been told by the preacher there are vanities and vapors all around. Everything is vanity and vapor. But, but on occasion we get this. There is a sore evil. This you want to talk about, I mean, we started talking about oppression and travesties of justice. We started talking about corruption. If you want to know a real evil, that's what the preacher's telling you. If you want to know a real evil, this is one. I've seen those under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners to the hurt thereof. Riches kept to the detriment of their owners. The evil is to live for riches to try to store them up as the purpose of your life. That is a sore evil. Wealth is not the savior that so many people hope it will be. You cannot hold on to it. Verse 14 speaks of losing uh, those who gain a little wealth and then they lose it. Perhaps Perhaps through no fault of your own. Maybe a bad investment. And then the money is gone and it speaks of he has a son and there's nothing in, in verse 14 and there's nothing to provide then for his family. Wealth, money is such that you cannot hold on to it. And in the end, you certainly can't keep it. Verse 15 says, we came into the world naked, we go out the same way. This is alluded to in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 6, where Paul says, we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out. Now we've seen people try to do this. I, I thought about um, those tombs in ancient, uh, the ancient Egyptians buried things with the kings, with the, with the dead. But what, we, what are we finding? We're finding that stuff's still there. They didn't take it anywhere with them. We've been to funerals and, and I've seen people come by the casket and put things in the casket. But friends, that person's not taking that stuff into eternity. 
It's a well-worn saying, but it holds true. Hearses don't have trailer hitches, and you never see one pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. Here again, the preacher would tell us that money can be useful, but it's a vapor. And, and what money buys is a vapor. So don't put too much stock in it. Uh, he would tell us that there is some temporary, momentary value. As a matter of fact, we're going to see later, I think it's in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon will say that money is the answer to everything. Some of you are like, I knew it. I knew it. Well, we're going to have to get there and see the context of that to get to the truth. But there is, there is value, but it's momentary. It's temporary. So, so we don't get, again, we don't get discouraged. We don't get depressed about this. We don't quit our jobs and say, money's vanity. What's the point? We certainly don't have some silly notion about taking a vow of poverty. But this text keeps, keeps our perspective in alignment with the word of God. Who can, who can understand these things Better than the children of God. Better than those who come to his word. It would do us all good. It would, it would do us all good to learn the use of money. To learn a good, proper, biblical, godly use of money. To learn how to make money. To learn how to save a little money. To learn how to spend wisely. But our perspective must be that money does not satisfy This should go without saying, but we better say it. In the text, it says money, wealth, abundance. And, and these things are representing not only money, wealth, but also what money can buy. I say this because some of you say, well, money can't satisfy, but it can buy me a boat. Some of you know. But here's the thing, that boat won't satisfy either. So what does satisfy? Under the sun, what does satisfy? He's just told us in the past verses that the only lasting value that we have here is our communion and our worship with God. But then we have this. How Christians are we to look at money, the blessings of God? How are we to, to think about these things as Christians? We come to verses 18 through 20 telling us to enjoy the good gifts of God. Verse 18, behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely. It is good and fitting. Here's the idea. It's beautiful. This is a beautiful thing in the sight of God. It is good and beautiful for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God has given him for his portion. This is good. And okay, so this is not, and we said this early on in our study, but let's just be reminded, this is not the Epicurean idea of eat, drink, and be merry. It doesn't, no, but this is, hey, God has given us these gifts. And even in the most mundane, ordinary thing, what, what is the thing that is super ordinary? We're well, just eating a meal. What's the most ordinary thing? Just drinking, uh, I'm thinking back, not today, but I'm thinking back to the summer, drinking a cold glass of water. 
Isn't that ordinary and mundane? Do you know what is good and fitting and beautiful before God that we enjoy that meal? And by the way, do you have to have you have to have wealth? What is a glass of water? What's what's a I mean, this enjoyment of what we eat can be just a ham sandwich. It can be very simple. This is not, you've got to go be super wealthy. No, wait a minute. Enjoy the blessings that God has given you. And for each one of us, those are going to be at different measures. Enjoy these things. Christians, this is what we are to do. God has given it for your portion, for your reward. This is what you have in this temporary under the sun life. Enjoy those things. Now, now this, this flies in the face of what many Christians have been taught. We've been taught one extreme or the other. The, the ditch on one side of the road or the ditch on the other side of the road. Either we hear from the health, wealth, and prosperity people, Christians should be rich. We should all be millionaires. That's God's will for every one of his children. Or we hear on the other side, Christians should have nothing. We should be poor. We should never have anything. Whatever you have, the preacher is telling us, enjoy it as a gift from God. See, that perspective is important that you see it as a gift. Not that you just enjoy it, but that you enjoy with thanksgiving to God for what he has provided. Verse 19, every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth hath given him the power to eat thereof and to take his portion and rejoice in his labor. Do you know, <laughs> having that meal to eat, that glass of water to drink, that is the gift from God, but enjoying that meal to eat, enjoying that drink, the enjoyment of it is the gift of God. How many, how many people have we known of that can eat a meal, an extravagant, expensive meal, and not enjoy it? Because they're worried about somebody taking it away from them. They're worried about what's going to be tomorrow. They're, wor they're worried about something because they're not enjoying it with gratitude and thanksgiving to God. That, listen, even the enjoyment is the gift of God. It's good, it's fitting, it's right, it's beautiful to eat and drink and enjoy what God has given. This is the reward for our labor under the sun. And it is a righteous, good thing to enjoy life with thanksgiving to God for his benevolence toward us. Enjoying the things of this life without thanksgiving to God as sin. As hard as life can get, we can appreciate the goodness of God. We can, we can give thanks and we soon forget about the hard days. Look at, look at verse 20. For he shall not remember the days of his life. They may be hard, they may be tough, but he won't remember those. God answereth him in the joy of his heart. I thought about the, the things that we remember. We remember, what do we talk about? The good old days. The good old, that's what we remember. 
Remember the good old, let me tell you about the good old days. And I got to tell you, I'd love to hear my grandfather talk about the good old days. The good old days. And I like to think that I would have enjoyed those good old days as well. But the truth is, I'm too soft. Papa grew up in the Great Depression. He grew up knowing hard times. But as he, as he talked about that, and everyone that I've ever known who talked about those hard times, they never, they never had a hard luck story. <laughs> they talked about the good things. They talked about, they talked about the blessings. And I think this is important. I, I think the reason is because my grandpa knew Jesus. So he, he could have, he could have been bitter. He could have been hateful about those hard times, but because God answered him in the joy of his heart, he forgets the hard things and he remembers the good blessings of God that he has enjoyed for his whole life with thanksgiving. Christians, who, who can do this but believers in Jesus Christ? You, you cannot enjoy the good things of life if you're worried about what you're going to have tomorrow. But Christians, we can say he provided for me today. He's going to provide for me tomorrow. I take no thought of what tomorrow brings. If you're not a believer, how can you enjoy the good things of life? How can you enjoy the good things of life when you know this life is coming to an end? And without Jesus Christ, your life will be a long series of hard days followed by judgment and eternal damnation. How can you find enjoyment in that? No, there is none. But for those who know forgiveness of sin, for those who know the love of God through Jesus Christ. We can live on a hard day and say, you know what? This is just a this is just a moment. This is just a this is just a vapor. This is just a brief time. But one day I will be with my Lord. So for this time, I'll enjoy that ham sandwich and that cold glass of water. And if God should bless me with a ribeye steak, I'll enjoy that as well. But we can say with that Christian perspective, we can say what Job said. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. You know what that reflects? That reflects that Job was not putting all his stock in his stuff. Because he lost all his stuff. And he still said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Christians, this is our perspective. And it can only be our perspective through Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would help us where we have gained the, the thinking and the, the process of the world in ourselves. Lord, help us to flush that. Help us to jettison those ideas and help us to focus our attention that we may be so caught up in the grace that you have bestowed on us through Jesus Christ that there is no getting us down. That there is no, <laughs> that there's no putting us down. But the Lord, we Worship and praise you continually with thanksgiving, enjoying day by day these brief 
momentary blessings that you have given us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.